Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we adore you this morning. Oh, what joy it was to sing with your people that you are our mighty fortress, to hear your church sing that and believe that and confess that together, that Christ is our victor who defeats our ancient foe, that before your throne we stand and we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, that though we are sinners, though we deserve your wrath, that you sent Jesus in our place that we might be forgiven, that all we have is Christ. So God, we thank you for this morning already. We pray that you have been glorified and that your people have been edified. Lord, we pray now as we turn your attention to Psalm 32, turn our attention to Psalm 32, that you would teach us, God, that you would show us what blessedness it is to be forgiven, how happy and delightful it is to be called a child of God, to be in your kingdom, to be adopted and your family to sit at your table. So now we pray, we approach your throne boldly as sons and daughters of the king. And Lord, we ask, Lord, we, we pray for Jerry, for our pastor, as he's finishing up his vacation, Lord, that he is rested from this year, that he's had time to recuperate, that he comes back energetic and ready to, to continue on in the work that you have for him. Lord, we pray for the the S family this week as they're still adjusting to their new country in Central Asia. Lord, we pray right now specifically that you would would heal them and allow them to feel better for for Alex and for Josie as they're recovering from COVID. Lord, be with them as they adjust to their city, as they meet and and start to work with their teammates and as they meet people in their city, that you would open up opportunities for the gospel and you would use them mightily for your namesake and for your kingdom in a dark land. And Lord, on Reformation Day, we're reminded of the D family who's serving in the the birthplace of the Reformation. Lord, that you would open up doors to present the gospel to both Germans and to Central Asian peoples who they are working with. Lord, we pray as we remember the Reformation Day that we would keep the gospel pure in our day. That it's so easy to drift away from the truth, that it's so easy to embrace false teachings, it's so easy to embrace works righteousness, that we would believe with rock-solid confidence and justification by faith alone. That all who believe in you, believe in the one that you sent, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in the gospel, can be freely forgiven of their sins. It is a gift to be received and not, not a work to be earned. So God, we pray that we would, would believe that, that everyone in this room would, would know that truth and believe that and know the blessedness it is to be forgiven. And because of the the happiness that we have, because of our forgiven state, that we would go and share that good news with others. So God, be with us this morning. Open up your word to us. Be with me as I preach and as I speak. Guard me from error, O God. May your word go forth and not return void. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be continuing our journey through the Psalms with you this morning as we look at Psalm 32. So hopefully your Bibles are still open to Psalm 32. If not, go ahead and open back up there. Last week, uh, Mike gave us the biblical answer for the question, why do the wicked prosper? We looked at Psalm 73, and he helped us think biblically through the apparent prosperity of the wicked. Why do the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous suffer? I think it's important that we, uh, that we keep those qualifiers, right? The apparent prosperity of the wicked. 
They seem to prosper. They seem to be happy. They seem to be blessed. Because as we're looking at our psalm this morning, Psalm 32, it seeks to answer the question, who is truly blessed? Who is truly happy? Is it the wicked? What do you think? No. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 32. Verse 10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. The wicked are not truly happy. The wicked are not truly blessed. Those who seem to be prosperous have many sorrows. They are still lacking. They are not satisfied. Those whom the world calls prosperous are not truly happy. This is illustrated in an old Japanese fable called the stonecutter. Many of you may have heard this. It goes something like this. Once there was a poor stonecutter. Each day he would go to the mountain and cut blocks of stone and then take them to the market to sell. He thought he was quite happy until one day he passed by the house of a rich man and he looked in the gate and he saw the rich man sitting in the shade with servants bringing him food to eat. And so the stonecutter thought to himself, surely the rich man is greater than I, said the poor st- stonecutter. If only I were a rich man, then I would be truly happy. At once, the stonecutter found himself sitting in a garden of of a nice house with servants bringing him food. Now I will be truly happy, thought the stonecutter. But then one day he looked out the window and he saw a parade and a king walked by and he saw the many servants following the king and how they hurried to obey the king and he saw how great the king's palace was. And so what did the stonecutter think? Surely the king is greater than I am. If only I were king, then I would be truly happy. And at once, the stonecutter found himself sitting in a throne in a great palace, and he had many servants hurrying to do whatever he wanted. Now I will be truly happy, he thought. But a few days later, he was standing outside, and he looked up, and he saw the sun was shining. The sun was beating down on his head, and it was so hot that he had to go inside. And so he thought, surely the sun is greater than I. If only I were the sun, then I could be truly happy. What happened at once? The stonecutter became the sun burning in the sky. He shone down on the earth and people cowered under the heat. Now I will be truly happy, he thought. But then a a cloud came between him and the earth so that no one could see him. He thought, surely the cloud is greater than I am. If only I were that cloud, then I could be truly happy. At once the stonecutter became a cloud raining down upon the earth. When When the rain came, people ran for cover. Now I will be truly happy, he thought. But then he noticed when the rain beat down on the mountain, the mountain was not affected. Surely the mountain is greater than I, he sighed. If only I were the mountain, then I would be truly happy. At once the stonecutter became the mountain, strong and firm. Now I will be happy, he thought. But soon he noticed a small stonecutter coming up the side of the mountain. The stonecutter cut blocks away from, of stone from the mountain and took them away. And he thought, surely the stonecutter is greater than I am. If only I were a stonecutter, then I would be truly happy. This old fable, it illustrates the endless cycle of worldly prosperity. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring us true happiness and fulfillment. It always leaves you hungry for more. That was a fable. One of the clearest real-world examples I know of is probably the, the most successful quarterback of all time. Love him or hate him, Tom Brady. If you're an Atlanta fan, he might classify in the wicked, especially after 2017. Let's go back in in time for a moment to 2005. At this time, he had won three Super Bowls. He'd twice been named Super Bowl MVP. He'd been selected to the Pro Bowl four times. He was in a contract that paid him $60 million over 10 years. And on top of that, he was dating a Brazilian supermodel named Giselle Budgen. 
He seemed to have it all. But in 2005, Tom Brady sat down and he did an interview with 60 Minutes. If you haven't watched this, go, go and just search Tom Brady, 60 Minutes. And it's, it's sobering what he says. Brady says, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? The interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? And Brady answered, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So now we ask the question, has he found it? Now, 16 years later, he's now got seven Super Bowl rings. He's got all the QB records you could think of. He's now got a net worth of $250 million. He married that Brazilian supermodel who has a net worth of $400 million. Is he happy or does he need more? He seems to still be going after it, searching for something more. That's a sobering thought. And it's not just Tom Brady. 2011, Wall Street Journal published an article titled, Don't Envy the Super Rich. They are Miserable. In a paper published in 2018 by Harvard Business School, researchers asked more than 2,000 people who have a net worth of at least $1 million. Their wealth ranged from $1 million to multi-million to billion. And they asked how happy they were on a scale from 1 to 10, and then how much money, how much more money they would need to get to a 10. And all the way up the income wealth spectrum, basically everyone said they would need two to three times as much wealth to be perfectly happy. Just think about that. Another study published in 2018 in the Nature of Human Behavior found that the richer people get, the less happy they become. Research shows that once people reach a certain household income, in the United States they found it was $105,000 a year, more income tended, quote, tended to be associated with reduced life satisfaction and a lower level of well-being. And that same research showed that it's not just adults who were affected, but the children who came from those families, from those affluent families, were more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety and substance abuse than those who came from less affluent families. One more example. In May of this year, Forbes reported that news that Bill and Melinda Gates are divorcing after 27 years may have shocked the world, but probably came as less of a surprise to fellow members of the Forbes 400. They know all too well that money, even yacht loads of it, can't buy happiness. After examining the relationships of the 50 richest people in the United States, these are billionaires each worth at least $13.2 billion. So 50 richest people, the, the poorest one has $13.2 billion. Forbes found that these 50 people have said, I do, they've gotten married, a collective 72 times, 35 of which ended in divorce, putting their divorce rate at 49%. Let so that sink in. So who is truly blessed? Who is truly happy? It's not the prosperous. It's not the wicked. What does Psalm 32 say? Those who have been forgiven. The forgiven are the truly happy. Blessed are the forgiven. Look at Psalm 32 with me. Mark pointed out that the subscription says the maskil of David. So yes, scholars don't know exactly what that mean, means, but one guess is that it is a, a psalm that teaches something, a psalm of instruction. And who is our teacher? King David. So King David is, is seeking to instruct his readers. And the best teacher is the one who has personally experienced that which he is teaching. 
And what is David teaching on? He's teaching on the blessedness of being forgiven. This is one of seven penitential psalms in the Psalter. A penitential psalm is one of confession and repentance. But this one's different than all of the others. This is the only one written after the author had been forgiven. The six others are written during confession, during repentance, waiting for forgiveness, pleading and praying to God in penitence. The occasion referred to in this psalm that we'll find out about is the same one as referred to in Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is a very famous psalm. Jerry's going to preach on it in a few weeks, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. But we know in Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah. Psalm 51 is written in the midst of that, his, his prayer of confession. Psalm 32 is written after that, after he had obtained forgiveness from his prayer in Psalm 51. And this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 32, can be broken into two sections. So verses 1 through 5 deal with David's personal experience with confession and forgiveness. And verses 6 to 11, he gives instruction to his readers on how to live. So let's look at that first section. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Look at verses 1 through 2 with me. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so David is writing this psalm as a forgiven man. And he's telling us only the forgiven are truly blessed. King David had it all, but he knows that to be forgiven is to be truly happy. So we must ask the question, what do we need forgiveness for? What what does the text say? Three synonyms are given. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. We need to be forgiven for our rebellion against God, for doing that which God has commanded us not to do, for not doing that which God has commanded us to do. By our actions, we have set ourselves up as enemies of God, enemies of the king, enemies of the creator who has all power and authority. We have a problem. Our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities must be forgiven. They need to be covered. They need to be taken off of our account. Then, and only then, will we be truly blessed and truly happy. So David is teaching here that the happiness can only be found in the forgiveness of sins. Because if you're not forgiven of your sins, what is true about you? Who's your enemy? God. God is your enemy, and nothing can be worse than having God as your enemy. But the opposite is also true. If nothing is worse than God as your enemy, then nothing is better than God as your father. If you are forgiven, though God could justly treat you as an enemy, he treats you as his child. The forgiven are enemies of God who have been adopted as children and welcome to eat at the king's table. That's a blessed thought. That's a joyous thought. My favorite biblical illustration of this is the story of Mephibosheth. You ever heard the story of Mephibosheth? Can you say that, Mephibosheth? Yeah. I don't hear that name very often. But Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. So Saul was the first king in Israel, and God took Saul's kingdom away because of Saul's sin against God. Normally in ancient Near East history, how do, how do kingdom successions work? Right? The, the king is king. When he dies, who becomes king? His son. So Jonathan would become king, and then after Jonathan died, who would become king? Mephibosheth. 
So it should go Saul, Jonathan, Mephibosheth. But because of Saul's sin, God had taken the kingdom away from him and had given it to David. He had anointed David as king. And David and Jonathan were best friends, and they had made this covenant together. Jonathan knew that God had given the kingdom to David. He was totally on board with it, and he, he was best friends with David, and they made a covenant together that they would look after each other and look after each other's families and look after each other's children. But not many people knew about that except for Jonathan and David. And so when Jonathan and Saul died in battle, what do you think the family of Saul did? They got out of town. They ran because normally a normal king would come in and he'd end the bloodline. He'd make sure there's nobody in the kingdom that has a claim to the throne. That's not what David did. It took, took a little while, but after several years, he remembered his promise to Jonathan and he asked the question, is there any one of Jonathan's family that I can show mercy to. And Mephibosheth was there. Now Mephibosheth, when they fled, the servant had gone so much in haste that he dropped Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. And so just think a little bit of the life of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth basically thinking he's an enemy of the state. He's a refugee. He's living in terror. He can't do anything for himself. He's crippled. He thinks the king's going to kill him at any moment. And all of a sudden, he gets a summons to the king. What does he think is going to happen? He thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's going to have a death sentence. And that would be normal. That would be the, the normal, customary thing to do for David to, to punish him, to end his life. But what does David do? He says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and ye shall eat at my table always. And here's the response of Mephibosheth What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then that chapter ends So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So this man who lived this life of fear, a life of worry, a life of stress, had been adopted into the king's family. That's blessedness. That's happiness. That's the life of the forgiven. We no longer have to run to keep up with the rest of the world, the endless cycle of worldly success, always chasing after happiness but never finding it. No, the forgiven are truly happy. The forgiven are truly blessed. For we who are enemies of God have been shown kindness and adopted into the king's family and invited to sit at the king's table. That's good news, right? Is that good news? Yes. All right, amen. Yeah. But let's finish verse two. Blessed is the one whose transition is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So to be forgiven, to be blessed in your spirit, there must be no deceit. That's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. We are masters at deceiving ourselves. Jeremiah 17.9 says, says this about the heart. It says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's wicked above all things. It's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So what do we deceive ourselves about? Listen to 1 John 1.8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we deceive ourselves if we say that we have no sin. Because the Bible says, Romans 3.23, who sinned? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Earlier in Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14, which says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the natural state of mankind. We're natural-born sinners, and naturally we deceive ourselves and deny our sin. We want to pretend like it doesn't exist. But God's law shows us that we are sinners. The word of God held up to us like a mirror reveals our sin and that we fall short of God's holy standard. God says, be holy for I am holy. And when we're confronted with that, we should see the reality of our sin. I love how the evangelist Ray Comfort taught us how to share the gospel. So his, his method, it's called the way of the master. He, he goes and he, he asks, asks someone, do you think you're a good person? And what's the person going to say? Yes. And pretty much everyone's going to say yes. Yes, I think I'm a good person. That's what most people will say. But they're deceived. So then Ray will show them the deceitfulness of their answer by walking through the Ten Commandments with them. They'll say, have you ever lied? They say, yes. Well, what does that make you? A liar. Then he'll say, have you ever stolen something, even something small? Well, yes. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yes. Well, that's called blasphemy. What, it breaks the third commandment. What does that make you? A blasphemer. Have you ever murdered someone, he'll ask. Usually that answer is no. Well, Jesus said if you hate someone in your heart that you've committed murder. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Well, yes. What does that make you? A murderer. Have you ever committed adultery? No. Well, Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes. What does that make you? An adulterer. So then he'll finish and he'll say, so by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, murderous, adulterer at heart, and that's only five of the Ten Commandments. When confronted with the reality of the law, we all stand condemned. We deserve judgment. And usually that's how those evangelistic conversations will go. But if you do that long enough, you might run into someone, when you go through the Ten Commandments, who are convinced that they haven't broken any of them. This happened to me several times. I remember one specifically in Senegal where a man would just not admit that he'd broken any of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever worshipped something above God? Oh, no, I've never done that. Have you ever used God's name in vain? No, I've never done that. Have you ever lied? Oh, no, I've, I've never done that. We could have called him on that one. And then we'd ask, so you're perfect. And he'd go, oh, no, 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 no one's perfect. Only God is perfect. But he would never admit to a, a particular sin. He, he was convinced that he hadn't broken any of them, even though he admitted to a general sinfulness. He was deceiving himself. And that's the deceitfulness of the heart. You will make your own sin so small that you will convince yourself it doesn't even exist. Another way our heart is deceitful is that we are masters, and I mean masters of self-justification. We do this all the time, right? We always have a good reason for our sin. We're always on really good terms with ourselves. Well, yes, I told a lie, but it was, it was because of this. Well, yes, I stole that, but it was because of this. Or we blame others. Instead of taking responsibility for our sin, we shift the blame to others. This is what the very first sinners did. Adam and Eve, remember? Eve blamed the serpent. Uh, Adam blamed Eve, and by doing so, blamed God. It was the woman that you gave to me. And so we do this all the time, too. Well, yes, I got angry and I lost my temper, but it's because you said this. If you weren't acting that way, I wouldn't have gotten so angry. Well, yes, I looked at a woman with lust, but did you see what she was wearing? This is deceitfulness. This is sin, and God will not be mocked. God will not let those excuses go unchecked. 
People also deceive themselves by thinking that they can do enough good to balance out the scales. Well, yes, I've sinned in all of these ways, but look how much good I've done. When I get to the end of my life, my works will balance in the scales and my good will outweigh the bad. That's deceitfulness. None of our righteous, none of our works are good. They're like filthy rags before God. And so what David is saying here is that no one can taste this blessedness of forgiveness until that sort of deceitfulness is removed from your spirit. And David's speaking here from personal experience. Because for a while, David chose to hang on to his deceitfulness. He chose to hang on to his sin. Look how he described that experience in verses 3 through 4. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So remember the occasion for which the psalm was written. Scholars say that up to 18 months passed from David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah until he finally confessed his sins to God. So what was that year to year and a half like for David? He says he kept silent. He says his bones dried up within him. His strength was gone. God's hand was heavy upon him because God will not let that sort of sin abide. And when the heavy hand of God's conviction is upon you, he will not let you rest. Your life will be miserable if you continue to try to hide your sin from God, if you try to blame others for your sin, if you try to justify yourself, if you try to cover up your own sin with your good works, which are just filthy rags. So let me take a moment and just ask you this morning, Are you keeping silent about your sin? Are you trying to cover up your own sin? Are you blaming your sin on others? Are you ignoring your sin? And if you're doing that, do you feel the Lord's heavy hand of conviction upon you? Do your bones feel dry within you? Is your strength dried up? Now I ask the question, what sins are you hiding from the Lord. Think through the Ten Commandments that we went through earlier. You shall have no other gods before me. Is there something you're prioritizing over the one true and living God? You shall not make any graven images or bow down to them. Are you worshiping God as he's prescribed in his word? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Have you used the word God's name flippantly like a curse word? Or have you done things in the name of God which, uh, that, that aren't right? Have you, are you using God's name to abuse others or for selfish gain? Fourth commandment, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do you forsake the assembly of God's people for worship? You shall honor your father and mother, children. Are you obeying your parents? Do you honor them? You shall not murder. How are your relationships? Think through them. Are there people in your life right now that you are harboring hatred toward? You shall not commit adultery. Are you looking at others with lust? Are you treating image bearers of God as just objects that are meant for your sexual gratification? Are you viewing pornography? Are you doing things with your boyfriend or your girlfriend that are reserved for the marriage bed? God says you shall not steal. Do you steal others' ideas and pass them off as your own? Are you stealing time from your employer by wasting time on the clock? Are you stealing from the government by not paying your taxes? You shall not bear false witness. Are you a habitual liar? Do you gossip and do you slander? Do you, do you spread rumors or false reports? You shall not covet. Do you envy your neighbor's house or your coworker's car or your friend's spouse? 
Or think through Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, where this list of sins is given. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Evaluate yourself. Examine yourself. Those are all pretty, pretty obvious sins, ones that we know are bad. But what about respectable sins? Jerry Bridges wrote a book to help us think through respectable sins, things that don't seem that bad to us. Are you frustrated? Are you discontent? Are you unthankful? Are you prideful or selfish? Are you anxious and fearful? Do you lack self-control? Are you impatient? Are you irritable? Are you angry? Are you judgmental? Are you worldly? Do any of those things describe you? Think about the things that you choose to entertain yourself with. Are you entertained by things which God hates? Sins which Christ died for? What about sins that are celebrated by our culture but bring death and destruction? Like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, divorce, hookup culture, fornication, filthy language and coarse joking. All of these sins and many more, it's not an exhaustive list, will cause your bones to dry up within you. If you keep silent about these sins, you will be dry, a spiritual desert. Your relationship with God will be distant if you even have a relationship with God at all. So it's a sobering question this morning that is required of us from the text that David is asking us. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel the weight of your sin? We must recognize that we are sinners deserving of nothing but wrath on our own accord. If we do, if you feel the weight of your sin, what then should you do? What does David do? The answer may surprise you. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's it? That's all you have to do? You confess, you stop hiding, you put away all the excuses and the self-justification and the blame and the self-righteousness, and you throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord, and you will forgive the iniquity of your sin? You mean you don't have to clean yourself up first? You don't have to serve for so long in church and serve in, in rock babies for 12 years before you can work off all your sins? No, no. David stopped trying to cover up his sin. He fully and freely confessed his sin, and God fully and freely forgave him. We read 1 John 1, 8 says, uh, earlier, which says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Listen to how that finishes. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news, church. That's good news. So how does God do this? Is God able to just ignore sin? Just pretend like it doesn't happen? No. God is holy. God is just. God must punish sin. We sang a song earlier, a new song, and together we confessed I am a sinner. You're blameless, Lord. My sins against you can't be ignored. They will be punished. 
I know they must. Your law demands it, for you are just. That's true. We sang truth. God is a holy and righteous judge who must punish all sin. He will not leave any sin unpunished. But he's also a God that loves to be merciful, that loves to show grace and loving kindness. When he describes himself to Moses, this is what he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will but who will by no means clear the guilty. So we're, we're faced with this dilemma. How can God forgive sin, but not leave sin unpunished? How is David forgiven? How can we be forgiven? Did you notice in that passage where God is describing himself to Moses, that he uses those same three words? He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Those are the words from Psalm 32. Let's read verses 1 through 2 again. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against, the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So keep your finger here in Psalm 32. We're going to come back. But let's go. Let's find where these verses are quoted in the New Testament. So turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8, says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Listen, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against, the Lord, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so Paul quotes David in the middle of his argument about Abraham. Why? Because Abraham's sins and David's sins, these Jewish heroes, are forgiven the same way that ours are. How was Abraham forgiven? How was David forgiven? Was it by works? No. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. David is, is singing about the righteousness apart from works received by faith. Were they forgiven by the blood of animal sacrifices? Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those things were pointing to something greater. Notice verse 8 of Romans 4, if you're still there. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's the same as in Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the word here is the word impute or the word reckon. God will not impute the sin to the sinner. He will not reckon the sin to the sinner. What does that mean? This man has committed sins and God has every right to hold him accountable, to add this sin to his account, add this sin to his account, to put it in his ledger. 
That's not what he does. He cancels it out. He covers it up. He forgives the sins. He forgets them. He doesn't add them to their account. Listen to Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. This is what it says about the forgiveness of God and him not uh, imputing our sins to us. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Or Hebrews 8, 12, where God says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So how does God do this? How can God do this? How can he be just and the justifier of the ungodly? Does he just choose to forget? Just have a little bit of spiritual amnesia? Oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. No. He's able to forgive sins and be just and the justifier of the ungodly because of the doctrines of justification by faith alone and the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Those are two very important doctrines. Write those words down. Justification by faith alone and imputed righteousness. So we are justified. Justified means to be declared righteous by faith in Christ. It's a legal declaration of our status. We were sinners, but God has declared us righteous. He has justified us in Christ. Not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who doesn't just cover sin. He takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised King of David who would reign forever came and he lived the perfect life. Perfect obedience to God's law. If Ray Comfort went up to Jesus, he could answer, no, I've never done any of those. To every single one. He never sinned. He never lied. He never lusted. He always did the will of his Father. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself perfectly every time. So Jesus didn't deserve to die. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died in our place as our substitute so that we can be forgiven, so that, so that our sins may not be counted against us. But we're not only morally neutral, there's more. Listen to 2 Corinthians verse 5. Or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. So that's what we've been talking about. He's not counting the sins against the sinner. So what, what does he do? What does he do? He doesn't impute their sin to them, but their sin still must be punished. So who does he count their sin against? Who does he impute their sin to? Listen to verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God, this is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. God on the cross imputed our sin, the sin of those who believe, to Christ, so that the price for our sin has been paid by Christ, by his death, He cried out, it is finished. The payment for sin is accepted by God. We can be forgiven of our sins. Our slates can be wiped clean. But God does not just leave us morally neutral. We don't just need the absence of sin. We need perfect righteousness. We need perfect obedience to God's law. Remember, what's God's standard? You must be holy, for I am holy. And so what does God do? He takes our sins, imputes them to Christ, and he takes Christ's righteousness and imputes it to those who believe. 
imputed righteousness. It's an alien righteousness from outside of us. So we're justified, we're declared righteous, and Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. And so if you imagine a ledger, he takes the sin out of our account, puts it on Christ's. He takes the righteousness of Christ's account, and he puts it on ours. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. So how do we receive this? How do we receive this great exchange? Same way as David. Faith alone. Repent and believe. Look at Psalm 32. Go back to Psalm 32 and look at verse 5. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This confession flows from faith. Faith that God is good. Faith that God will be merciful. Faith that God is faithful and that he's fulfilled his promise to send a Messiah who would be pierced for our our iniquities and and crushed for our transgressions. Faith that Christ was the propitiation for our sin, who by his death satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. And now by faith, we receive his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Sorry, I hope you left your, your finger in Romans 4 because we're going to go to Romans 3. So turn back to Romans 3. We're going to read verses 28 through, 21 through 28. Romans 3, 21 through 28. This summarizes this, this doctrine so beautifully. Romans 3, 21 through 28. This is a summary of the gospel, of what we've been talking about, justification by faith alone. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's justification by faith alone. So today, as we've said, is is Reformation Day, the day in history on 1517, which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, sparking the Protestant Reformation. Luther said of this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that it is the doctrine by which the church stands or false. Is that important? That doctrine of a justification by faith alone. It was this doctrine in opposition to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the teaching of works righteousness, that fueled the Reformation. Luther had a similar experience to David in Psalm 32. Listen to the story of how Luther was converted. This is how he tells it. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, 
certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat urgently upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So just like David, this monk, Martin Luther, kept silent and his bones wasted away. His strength was dried up. He tried to achieve righteousness by his own works, by his own merit, but he couldn't do it until he found through the pages of scripture that he cannot earn it. He must humble himself, repent, and believe and receive the free gift of grace offered in the gospel. Then he found the blessedness of being forgiven. Instead of Luther, that Psalm 32 is actually one of his favorite psalms because he called it a Pauline psalm. It's one that, that showed, that proved that all throughout time, God has always worked by justification by faith alone, not by works. That forgiveness is offered without the law, without works, for the man who believes. So we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the experience of David. That was the experience of Abraham. That was the experience of Luther. That's the experience of every true believer throughout all time. The people of God are saved when they come to the end of themselves. When they stop trying to hide their sin. When they stop trying to clean themselves up. When they confess and repent of their sin and believe in Christ alone for salvation. And that's what David instructs his readers to do in the second section of Psalm 32. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 32. And we're looking at the second section. We're going to do this quickly, pretty straightforward application here in verses 6 through 11. Psalm 32, verse 6. Okay, David, we've heard your experience. What then shall we do? David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So, We've talked a lot about blessedness and about forgiveness. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be truly happy? Confess your sins to the Lord while there is still time. Don't be foolish and wait forever. There is a day coming where Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. On that day, every knee will bow and confess Christ is king. The question is, are you going to wait until it's too late? So often we feel the need to clean ourselves up before coming to Christ. No. He calls you as you are. He will do the cleansing. His heart is drawn out to you. He invites you to come. He says in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling you to come, whether it's for the very first time or for the millionth time. We are kept the same way that we came in. We often think, okay, the gospel, repentance and faith is the entry door to the gospel. Then I move on to to greater things. It's the entryway into Christianity, but then I move on to greater things. No, no. The same way we are sanctified, the same way we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. We come to Christ. We believe in him. Martin Luther, talking about him again, he, he preached justification by faith every week and his, uh, his congregation got tired of it and said, why week after week do you keep preaching to us justification by faith alone? And his answer was, because week after week you keep forgetting it. We so often feel the need to clean ourselves up. Okay, I've been saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now it's up to me. Oh, I've sinned. I'm going to keep silent. My bones are going to waste away. I got to work really hard. No, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by grace alone through faith alone. Do what David did. Acknowledge your sins to the Lord. Don't cover your iniquity. We've been giving out a new book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't picked that up, please do so. It's a great book. I want to read you just a passage from that book about this very topic. Ortland writes this. He says, The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. Verse 28 of our passage in Matthew 11 tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. So whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even that of your own. He is gentle and lowly in heart. This is not who he is to everyone indiscriminately. This is, for, this is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, who cry to them for help. So the invitation is given to you today. Whether you've never believed in Christ or whether you've believed in Christ for 50 years, believe in Christ. Come to Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to Jesus. He will embrace you in his arms. He'll embrace you and he'll hold you through the most difficult circumstances in your life. Psalm 32 goes on, verses 6 and 7. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is our God. He's a good God and a good Father. He's our Redeemer. He's our Rock. He's our Deliverer and our Defender. So remember, this is a a, a mass skill, a psalm of instruction. David is teaching us based upon personal experience. And look at what he says at verses 8 and 9. He says, David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So David is saying to his readers, learn from my mistake. Don't be like I was for that year to year and a half where I kept silent. I was like a stubborn mule. Don't be a mule. Don't be stubborn. Run to Jesus. Look to the cross. Get on your knees and confess your sins to the Lord so that you can be forgiven and happy and blessed Then, and only then, can you have true fulfillment and joy in this world. 
You can have the right perspective in life. You won't be jealous or envious of the wicked who seem to prosper, like we talked about last week. Because again, verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then finally in verse 11, David commands you to be happy. He commands you to be happy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You're commanded to be happy. If you're a Christian, you're commanded. Are you glad in the Lord? Do you rejoice in your salvation? Are you filled with joy? This is what the gospel does to us. It gives us the only sort of true happiness that we can find only in the gospel. Blessed are the forgiven. We're now going to respond to what Christ has done for us by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And this is a, this is a joyous meal. In the Lord's Supper, we get to, to see and we get to taste what we've been talking about together. We get to see and taste the gospel. Our statement of faith says that in the Lord's Supper, members of our church and members of churches of like faith and practice, by the sacred use of bread and wine, commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. In Matthew 26, 26-29, we, we see the Lord Jesus institute the Lord's Supper. Hear these words. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of it again until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in the Lord's Supper, we get to, to see and taste what we've been talking about. We get to look back at what Christ has done for us in the cross. We get to look up where Christ is seated in the heavens as we commune with him spiritually through this meal. And we get to look around to the body that he has bought as we commune together with each other. And we also get to look forward to what Christ will do when he returns, when we will eat and drink with him in the Father's kingdom. Now this meal is open to everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Christ alone for salvation, who has followed Christ's command and been baptized as a believer, and who is a member in good standing of a local church that preaches the true gospel. The Lord's Supper is a serious matter. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in a of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take a moment of, of solemn self-examination. We're going to confess our sins to the Lord, repent of our sins, and we're not going to wallow, we're not going to remain silent. We're going to run to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of our sins and the blessedness that can be found only in him. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, this is the position I'm going to take, one of confession and repentance. I'm going to get down on my knees, so I invite you, if you're able, get down on your knees as you confess your sins to the Lord. Let's pray together.
Father, we confess that we stand guilty before you based upon our own works. We have sinned in so many ways against you in thought and word and deed and things that we've done and left undone. God, you know our heart. Reveal to us our sin. Show us our sin. Bring us to true confession and repentance. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live perfectly obeying your law and died the death that we deserved to die on that cross, suffering the full wrath of you for our sins so that all who repent of their sins and believe in Christ may be forgiven and have this truly blessed and happy life as we read about in Psalm 32. So God, now as we, as we take the bread and, and, and take the cup, I pray that we would be reminded that we would receive it by faith as we commune with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.